Dennis Preachers. Father, as we come to a time where we now turn to your word, Father, I recognize as did Ezekiel staring out over a field with nothing but dry bones. Father, anything done in my strength is as pointless as what he saw before him. For you alone, God, bring life. You alone enliven our spirits, opening our eyes to see reality as it is. We acknowledge, God, that in our flesh, the wisdom of God is as foolishness. Lord, in anything that I would attempt to share this morning, in my strength would be that foolishness. So God, I pray that as I, I speak, that you would do what you do. God, and take your word and apply it to our lives. The word that your spirit inspired, would you apply that to our lives? Convicting us of sin. Encouraging us to that which you have called us to be, to do. God, might you remind us this morning and enable us to see you in the person of Christ as revealed in Scripture. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3, our text this morning, drawn from the fourth book in our Bible's New Testament, and it contains words with which I'm sure most all of us are familiar this morning. Verse 16 is one of the most, if not the most, cited verses in all of Scripture, and were I to ask, I have a feeling this morning that many, if not all of us, could recite verse 16 from memory. So, why don't we try and do that together? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Good. There was some variation, no doubt, because of the different translations used in our own memorization process, but we were there, some of us in the King James, and some of us in the more recently translated versions of Scripture. But I, I think I, th I saw everybody's lips moving, and they weren't moving in yawns. You were at least miming, if nothing else. And so today... We're going to be examining John chapter 3 in the shadow of Advent's second theme, love. Or what I believe we'll see together is God's Trinitarian love displayed in this event that this season commemorates and which we call Christmas. So, with that said, if you would follow along as I begin reading John chapter 3, verse 1. The apostle writes, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. (laughs) How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he or she has done has been done through God. And may God bless the public reading of his word this morning. In church recently, I was reading a book about John Owen, the 17th century Puritan pastor theologian, and I was struck by Owens's observation of how people in his day were so quick to say that they believed in a God of love, but then like the prodigal son in Christ's parable, they couldn't see God the Father lovingly welcoming sinners home. And all they could process, these men and women in his day, all they could process and anticipate was a father's anger with the hope that at, at least, in the least, he'd be lenient and maybe allow them a place of a servant In his house, since by their actions they were convinced that they had forfeited their standing as family. And and I believe that what Owens observed in the 1600s still holds true today for so many people. And and here I'm speaking about the church, but for so many people they struggle to reconcile God, God the Father, with love. So clearly evidenced in recent years by the announcement of several prominent pastors that the Old Testament has very little relevance for God's people, at least in the proclamation of the gospel. For in the Old Testament, we don't see a God of love. Oh, they're quick to see in Christ, and thus in the New Testament, a loving God the Son. But as Owens wrote, what fears and questionings are there of His, this is the Father's, what fears and questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness. At best, 
Many think there's no sweetness at all in him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. So for many, God the Father is just a God of wrath, a God of judgment, while God the Son, whose birth we celebrate this season, he's the loving one. And Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor theologian of this century, believes this misrepresentation may be traced in many instances to the church's poor proclamation of the gospel. And I'm inclined to agree with him. Because Ferguson asks, why is it then that people think less of the Father's love? He answers, it's in part because sometimes this is how the gospel's preached. God loves you because his son Jesus died for you. So trust him as your Savior. And so here's a loving Savior seen to persuade a, re a reluctant, even bitter Father to be gracious. Jesus buys the Father's love at infinite cost. But church, that's just not true, as our text today displays. God's love isn't isolated to Christ. It's spread evenly throughout the Godhead. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains of the Trinity, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are what? One. One. One God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And therefore, God, who is love, is and can be no more or less loving in the person of the Son than the Father or, or the Spirit then the Father and the Son, and the Father, then the Spirit and the Son, and so on. And therefore, because John tells us in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And because the reason that Christ was present to do so was because God the Father so loved the world that he gave him, and because it's through the Spirit that we're born again by belief in this gospel, we're going to break with tradition today by not examining a nativity text, so to speak, that, that event that surrounds our Christmas celebrations in which we typically focus on. Instead, we're going to study Christ's conversation with Nicodemus, in which I believe we clearly see God's Trinitarian love, and we'll see how it relates to Christmas. And the first person that we'll address this morning is the Father, because he's the subject of our inquisitive Pharisees' initial statement there in verse 2. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So our first point concerns the Father's love. And before we consider Christ's pointed response, let's just set Nicodemus's words in context here. As a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was the Sanhedrin, which is a a group traditionally composed of about 70 elders who oversaw the governance of Israel, so somewhat like the Supreme Court today. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a man of prominence. He was a teacher of Israel, as Jesus describes him there in verse 10, who clearly displayed a hunger for truth because he didn't allow Christ's bucolic, blue-collar background to disqualify him from the role that he clearly filled and which Nicodemus even acknowledged, that of a rabbi. That said, Nicodemus was also clearly conscious of Christ's social stigma, wasn't he? Because he came at night to interview this peripatetic prophet of whom he'd heard so much. Where before his opening line, while flattering, in this flattering line, I believe it masked the very confusion that I mentioned moments ago regarding God. 
And so let me explain. Jesus' curt response here to Nicodemus' courteous introduction declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So rather than thanking the Supreme Court judge for his kind words, Jesus dismissed his flattery and addressed the subject that had prompted this visit in the first place. And, and we know that Jesus hit the Nicodemus' nail on the head because our Pharisee doesn't stand there perplexed. He's not overcome by Christ's word. He keeps the conversation going, only his response reveals a complete lack of comprehension of what Jesus is describing. And that's the kingdom of God, or specifically belonging in God's kingdom. For Christ, the Father's kingdom, which he's been preaching about being near since he returned from his tempting in the desert, according to Matthew 4.17. For Jesus, the Father's kingdom is his, his rule in, or his reign over the lives of his people. And this, Jesus says, one can't even see unless you're born again. At which point, Nicodemus reveals his blindness because the man just blurts out, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Fair point. Now, what's impossible for us to discern is the tone in which this statement is made. Was Nicodemus perplexed by Christ's comment and simply straining the boundary of human understanding as he wondered? Surely that's not possible. Is it? Or was this response a cynical dismissal of Christ's clearly outlandish statement? And I don't know that our text provides us with enough insight to be definitive here. Regardless, I believe that Nicodemus's clear confusion reveals his conception of God's character. And so this is where we come back to that which I mentioned a moment ago. For Nicodemus, a Pharisee, so one of those that Jesus condemned in Luke eleven forty two, 42, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love of God. For Nicodemus, God demanded excellence, perfection, he, he cared about every little detail, and therefore Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, prided himself, as did his brothers, in being the very best of the best. These men went to extreme lengths to obey God's laws. They even invented laws to keep them from breaking God's laws, even getting close. They were law keepers extraordinaire. But something was missing, and they knew it. Nicodemus knew it. Do you? Are you like Nicodemus this morning? Someone who can see the world needs structure, needs order, it needs rule, and that if this rule is to reflect God, then it has to demand the absence of wrongdoing and the presence of rightdoing, where the right needs to include at least care for the poor, feeding the hungry, protecting the powerless, so social justice, if you will, among other things. Are you like Nicodemus, are you committed this morning to these issues above all else? And yet, despite your zeal, it doesn't feel like enough. No matter how hard you try, it just doesn't feel like you're in God's kingdom. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and you really don't care for these things or for anything else that God may desire for that matter because you've been taught that the only thing that counts as regards God's kingdom is the prayed password which once you've said it, gets you in for forever. 
Now, if this is you today, hear Jesus' words recorded, verse 5. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So in stark contrast to Nicodemus' belief in a works-based faith where people can merit belonging in God's kingdom through their acts of the flesh, to use Jesus' word for human efforts there, meaning by their performance they could earn their place in God's presence. In sharp contrast to this faith fallacy, Jesus revealed salvation to be far more radical, requiring not new works, but what? New birth. Not an outward conformation, but rather an inward transformation. For Jesus, God's kingdom was accessible only to those born of the Spirit. At which point, Nicodemus, I think, man began to freak out. Because he couldn't bring this about. Oh, he could control his tithing, temple attendance, and law adherence. But he couldn't birth himself. And if this was what God was after, well, he was toast. God's expectations were more than he could manage, and thus he faced the prospect of standing before a holy God without any way to justify himself. Do you feel that way this morning? Frustrated because of all your hard work, all your efforts, they just don't seem to have given you the confidence that you so desperately desire as you look to the future. Or possibly you've been banking on a moment of emotion experienced many years in the past to be your free pass. But right now, you're beginning to wonder, was that wise? May I sincerely hope on something so subjective? I believe that speaking with Jesus, Nicodemus began to realize the dilemma we all face. How we're all sinful and incapable of being good enough to merit entrance into God's kingdom. How our works, good works, are as filthy rags, and no matter how faithful we feel we are to God's commands, we merit nothing but punishment commensurate with our sin's offense. And since God is eternal and infinitely holy, we, we face eternal and infinite punishment. I, I believe that listening to Jesus explain God's kingdom's requirements, Nicodemus felt fear creeping up and collecting in his throat. Because for Nicodemus, God is creator and judge holy and just. He's awful, unapproachable and wrathful. But then Nicodemus heard, heard those words so familiar to our ears but that I'm certain would have just blown him away. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus reminded this teacher of Israel that God is a God of love, for his love compelled him to give his only son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Thus, as the Apostle Paul would later explain to the church in Rome, God the Father demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And friends, that's why Sinclair Ferguson argues there's no gap between the love of the Father and that of the Son. Christ died for us. Why? Because the Father loved us. Not in order to induce or persuade a reluctant Father to love us. All the love that we see in Jesus 
is the Father's love too. Oh yes, it's expressed by and revealed in the death of Christ, but it's not purchased by it. Indeed, the Father's love is antecedent to the work of Christ. The, the Father's love is, to use the, the Latin phrase, it's the sine qua non. It's the essential thing of that work of Christ for us. For John actually writes this later, chapter 16 and verse 27 in his gospel. The Father himself loves you. You know God's love? And by that I mean, have you experienced it? Because it's not enough to know that God loves you. For such an understanding does not reflect the new birth belonging in God's kingdom requires. Rather, to be born again is to experience or to receive God's love by his grace through faith in the one he sent, not to condemn us, but to save us, who is Jesus. So have you believed in Jesus, God the Son sent by the Father because he loves us? In church, as we celebrate Christmas, may we see in Christ's first coming the Father's love and the Son's love, where Christ's love was definitely displayed by his submission to the Father's will. The Philadelphia Confession puts it this way in words that are so beautiful. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by the Father. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died. Put more succinctly, in the Apostle John's words that I referenced earlier, written in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. Do you know this love? This love, and I qualify my question as regards love, because I believe we've all experienced forms of love, or more accurately, emotions, sentiments that we classified as such, but all of these have radically differed from that that's described here. Those emotions, sentiments have served our purposes, seeking our satisfaction, where securing ourselves is the object of supreme significance. And the world chases after, and it sells that love. But that's not God's love. The love God is, the love Christ displayed in his death, the, the, the love without which we will each and every one never be satisfied. Do you know this love? Who is Jesus? And you can, because he tells us that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe? Or, or are you still trapped in darkness? And friends, Jesus said there in verse 19 of John 3, this is the verdict, or this is the judgment, 
Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And isn't that where we all begin? We are sinful from the the moment of our conception. We arrive on planet Earth with a propensity for darkness. We despise light for fear that it might expose us for who we really are. Puny, prideful peons pursuing power and pleasure. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't come under the conditions that he did. He he didn't submit himself to the Father's will, live, suffer, and die at the hands of sinful people because some were worthy. As Paul makes clear, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Christ came compelled by love, where this love didn't display the significance of the sinners he saved, It displayed his significance as the savior of sinners. So speaking to Nicodemus, I believe Jesus revealed the father's love, the son's love, but also the spirit's love. Because Jesus said there in verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And then later, several chapters, chapter 6, verse 63, he added, the Spirit gives life. But the flesh counts for what? Nothing. And thus the new birth necessary to see God's kingdom is brought about by the Spirit as he imparts new life to us. How? By uniting us to Christ. John Calvin described it thus, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. So, what does this love of the Spirit look like? Now, we've seen Father's love in sending the Son. We've seen Christ's love in his submission to the Father's will by being born, living, and then dying for us. What about the Spirit? And I believe our answer is contained for us in this text in Jesus' description of being born of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. It's a phrase that has caused much confusion over the centuries. And so let me explain. Because I'm sure that you can anticipate those words, water and Spirit, have led many to view new birth as indelibly linked to God's Spirit and baptism together, such that one faith group says, I was doing research, was led to see how one faith group's website declares this, holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, and here water baptism is being referenced, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons and daughters of God. We become members of Christ's church, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. Now, unfortunately, such a misunderstanding, and I believe it is that, Such a misunderstanding of Jesus' words here has led many to view baptism as a means, a work, for lack of a better word, but a work of accomplishing what Jesus attributes solely to the Spirit. So then, what does the water reference here in John's Gospel, chapter 3, what does the water reference here pertain to? And before I answer that, let me share several reasons why it doesn't, I believe, refer to baptism. Number one. There's no other reference to baptism 
here in our chapter, is there? In verse 15, Jesus says, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, we know whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 18 continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned. So you would think that if baptism were essential, a necessary counterpart to belief, then surely Jesus would have mentioned it in conjunction with his references to belief or or faith, right? Second reason, baptism doesn't fit with Jesus' analogy of the Spirit being like the wind. For the wind blows and you hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's going. So it is, Jesus says, with those born of the Spirit. So this free wind-like regenerating by the Spirit, it's it's hard to marry that to water sprinkling or, or dunking. Such a planned and intentioned action by men and women, it's confining. It's not freeing as per the analogy given, so it just doesn't seem to fit. The third reason, Jesus is, it seems, scolding Nicodemus here, isn't he? I mean, if he were to, if Jesus were to be referring to a practice not yet in use as it would be tied to his own death and resurrection, that'd, that'd be quite harsh for Christ to be rebuking Nicodemus for his ignorance. And then finally, Jesus' statement there in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? That seems to me to reveal that what he was referencing, what Jesus was referencing was a new covenant promise. And so what then does this water reference pertain to? And I believe it is the new covenant promise that's just been addressed. It's given us specifically, I think, in Ezekiel chapter 36. And so it would have therefore been one Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet is describing what God will do when he brings his people out of captivity. And Jesus later revealed that it spoke to far more than just Israel's return from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem. When he said in Luke 22:20, his blood secured this new covenant. And so what is Ezekiel describing in chapter 36? Well, in verse 34, he writes these words. For I will take you out of the nations. This is the prophet speaking as God unto his people. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so, speaking to Israel in his day, but looking forward to Christ's day, Ezekiel described God's work of water sprinkling as an act not describing the literal washing of his people, but rather their cleansing. Their cleansing, such that those that God would take out of the nations and would make his own would be those, as said, sprinkled with water and then indwelt by his Spirit. This is as one pastor theologian explains, the ones who will enter the kingdom, God's kingdom, are those who have a newness that involves two things, a cleansing of the old and a creation of the new. Where the cleansing is clearly tied to the water's work and the creation is the result of the Spirit. And so as we 
this morning, consider the practical expression of the Spirit's love described here, John 3, as new birth. What I believe Jesus had in mind was the washing away of our old life of sin, coupled to the reception of a new heart that's now no longer dead to God like a stone, like we were when, as Paul described to the Ephesians, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we have a heart that is alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the heart of flesh, as Ezekiel describes it, where flesh there means living, not unspiritual, as Jesus used that term in verse 6 here of chapter 3. So have, have you experienced the Spirit's love? Meaning, do you have a heart that's sensitive to God's truth? Do you feel conviction for sin? Guilt for insulting God's honor and defacing His glory? Or do you have feelings of, of guilt, but they simply stem from self-preservation? Or you feel bad. feel bad because you got caught and concerned about what the repercussions might be for yourself, but you're not, you're not guilty or feeling bad for the offense of the action or the word spoken itself? Have you been cleansed by Christ's Spirit such that you no longer feel ashamed of your past? Because you know God knows and you know that he has forgiven you for it. Or do you feel the need to still put on a mask in hopes that no one will ever find out about your secret sins? And friends, I pray this morning that each and every one of us knows God's love. It's a love so beautifully displayed as the Father sent his Son to be born, to live, and to die so that whoever believes in him may have his by his Spirit's enabling, may be united to his Son, Jesus Christ. And that guarantees eternal life. A life that we don't have to wait to begin at some unknown date in the future. Rather, this is a life we live in the present as Jesus described it. We live this life in the present by the truth, in the light, so that it may be plainly seen that what we do, we do through God. Emmanuel, might we live in light of this great love this Christmas? Might we live so that this great love of Christmas might be seen by those who surround us who don't know it? They might be led to ask us about it, and we might be prepared to give them the answer for our knowing of this love, which is all in Jesus. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we praise you for your love. God, you are a God who is love. But we are so broken and our understanding of love is so skewed that, Lord, we cannot see how love and discipline can mesh. Fence can't be simply swept under a rug. It must be addressed. And how you have made that possible for us by sending Jesus. Father, forgive us for how quickly we are led to see ourselves as worthy of your love by what we do. 
Lord, and even in those moments where we do seek repentance, how prone we are to see that act of repentance as now obligating you to be for us and not against us. As if by our actions, we could impose upon the creator God of the universe. No, rather, God, open our eyes to see how we repent and appeal to you for mercy simply because you have revealed yourself to be a God of mercy who when his people called by his name humble themselves and pray and seek his face has pledged to respond. Not because we now have payment to give you in exchange but simply because you are a God of mercy, of grace, of love. Thank you, God, for your love and how your love so fills our hearts that we need not fear anything. Lord, help us to, to see and to Hold on to that truth. Be reminded of how our fear is illogical. If you are who you say you are. And what you have done for us is true. We have nothing to fear. For Christ Jesus, you've set us free from death. Free unto life in you, Jesus. May we live that for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, as we close, we're going to stand and sing.